0: Genetic susceptibility to breast cancer due to BRCA, for example, was popularized with Angelina Jolie disclosing her status publicly, but we don't have that same celebrity stature for hereditary gastrointestinal cancer syndromes. Not as many people have heard that Lynch syndrome affects one out of 279 individuals. And so the more awareness that we can bring to what some of these hereditary cancer conditions are, and that there's ways to be proactive to either catch cancer early or reduce the risk of it happening altogether when you identify these hereditary syndromes that helps motivate people.
1: This is Dr. Marty Fried, a primary care addiction medicine doc at The Ohio State University Medical Center. The amazing genetics counselor you just heard drop in knowledge about Lynch syndrome was Jess Long at the University of Pennsylvania. And join me today on her Core I Am on air debut is the wonderful Dr. Tina Phan. Tina, welcome to the Core I Am family.
2: Thanks, Marty. Hi, everyone. I am Dr. Tina Phan, a fourth year MedPeets resident at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. So excited to be here. And yeah, I couldn't believe the stat that Jess mentioned.
3: Lynch syndrome is one out of 300 people. That's like the same as inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, think how many people with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis you all see all the time. That's how many people with Lynch syndrome you should be seeing. And so if you don't have any in your patient panel, you're missing them, not that you don't have
1: them. That was Dr. Pete Stanich, GI doc here at The Ohio State University Medical Center and president of the Collaborative Group of America's Inherited Gastrointestinal Cancer. It's funny because Lynch syndrome is all over standardized tests certainly in med school and definitely in internal medicine training, but I really haven't thought about it that much in attending clinical practice, and it looks like I probably should be.
2: Yeah, we all should be, Marty. And we should probably be referring to genetic counselors more, especially if there's a family history that is starting to feel like there is something genetics-y going on.
1: Definitely. Today, we're going to cover three big topics. First, who should we be referring to our genetic counseling friends?
2: And in particular, we will make it more practical by using Lynch syndrome as an example, but we'll also give general recommendations about non-Lynch syndrome familial patterns that might raise your spidey senses.
1: The second thing we're going to talk about is how we can set up genetic counselors for success by setting expectations with our patients about what we're going to do with that information once it is collected and any new information discovered.
2: Also in this section, we'll talk about preparing our patients to understand who exactly are genetic counselors what's going to happen in that visit, and after.
1: And finally, in the last section, we'll finish with some genetic counseling myth-busting.
2: Yes, things have changed so much recently about the genetic basis for many common illnesses, both cancer and non-cancer. So I'll talk about considerations like cost, privacy, and follow-up to testing that is important to know as we discuss genetic screening with our patients.
1: All right, sounds like a plan. Let's dig in.
2: I think if you
4: um, are part of the care team for a person with a cancer diagnosis who has not already um, been evaluated for genetics referral, some easy ones are from a GI perspective, any person with pancreatic adenocarcinoma should be offered genetic testing. Um, Any person with colon cancer diagnosed before age 50 should be offered genetic testing. Any person who has a mismatch repair deficient tumor of any kind should be offered genetic testing.
2: That was Beth Dudley, a genetic counselor who specializes in hereditary GI conditions at the University of Pittsburgh. We see so many patients with cancer and Beth gave us a short list of diagnoses that should prompt a referral to genetics.
1: Right, and that was pancreatic cancer and really any colorectal cancer. There's a few more, but the main point that I took away from this is what I can do as a primary care doc when patients get diagnosed with cancer. You know, these visits are hard. You often don't know what to say other than, you know, I'm so sorry. Gosh, this really stinks. But this gives us something to ask our patients about. You know, has anyone been talking to you yet about a genetics
3: counselor? The thing that always strikes me about genetic counselors is also you know, the focus on the family. And, you know, I think that's something that we do a a bad job on as doctors because you're trying to take care of the person in front of you and genetic counselors do a great job of saying, okay, you know, this is helpful for the person, but also this is going to help your kids or your brothers or sisters. Um, And even people with end-stage cancer, you know, feel very empowered by that. And it's really impressive to see, you know, you kind of talked about a pancreatic cancer patient where, yes, maybe it opens up some treatment options, but if they can get their kids tested and say they're not at risk for this or that we can watch them for this, it's very empowering. And that's what I've always noticed is like the biggest difference between the way genetic counselors talk to a person or look at talk to the patient about it and what we're used to doing. All
1: right. We should definitely be thinking about referring patients with active cancers to genetic counselors. What other groups should we be thinking about for genetic testing?
0: So those who don't have cancer themselves but are worried about, is there a genetic syndrome in my family increasing the cancer risk? They're most often referred by their primary care physician or their gynecologist when there's In the case of hereditary cancer genetic evaluation, multiple relatives affected, relatives at a younger-than-average age of diagnosis, like a breast or a gastrointestinal cancer under 50, or um, people who have a certain genetic ancestry where these cancer syndromes are more common, it's worth a discussion about whether a referral to a genetic counselor can help learn more.
1: So as Jess points out, there are some specific family risk factors to be thinking about. We should be listening for an unusually age of cancer onset in family history, multiple primary cancers in a single individual, clustering of the same types of cancers in relatives, or cancers occurring in multiple generations.
2: And a good example of this is Lynch syndrome, which is an inherited predisposition that significantly increases the risk not only for colorectal cancer, but also endometrial cancer, and modestly increases the risk for cancers of the stomach, small bowel, ovaries,
0: urinary tract, and more. There was one woman that I worked with whose sister had endometrial cancer in her 50s. Overall, the family history was not particularly striking, but we know with Lynch syndrome, for example, there are variations in the level of risk depending on which gene in particular has a pathogenic variant. And so universally certain tumors like endometrial tumors or colorectal cancers are now screened for Lynch syndrome. And so even though the family history wasn't striking, that's how this family was identified to have had Lynch syndrome. That woman that I saw tested positive for her sister's familial mutation. She's been undergoing more intensive colonoscopy surveillance. She's had a hysterectomy to drastically lower her risk. And I'm now seeing her daughter, who's also at 50% risk, who's making decisions about being in a different generation now. Does she wish to continue having a family does she wish to undergo hysterectomy what are the pros and cons of that so i think it really highlights that depending on the age at which you see a person there's different considerations for how is this going to affect their medical decisions what types of risk reduction are they thinking about and it really just highlights in a family where that genetic condition wasn't very obvious It's now affecting multiple generations and influencing the type of care that people get. But for that mother and that daughter, neither of them have been diagnosed with cancer. They have that opportunity to intervene. So I think for me, even saying that now, you know, that gives me chills. That's what we're in this for is that proactive ability that we have.
2: Sounds like Jess was able to screen this family early and hopefully prevent cancer with prophylactic surgery in the index patient's sister and niece just by making a Lynch diagnosis and carefully following their family history.
1: Yeah, I mean, that really is an incredible gift that the first patient was able to provide for her family. Let's talk in more specifics on how knowing one's risk of having Lynch syndrome changes management.
3: Lynch syndrome, the polyps turn into cancer very quickly. Sporadic adenoma takes 15 or 20 years to turn into cancer. In Lynch syndrome, that's three years or less. And so that's why we recommend colonoscopy every one to two years, because it can go from polyp to cancer very quickly. Even between yearly scopes, we know cancers can develop. And that's not because we missed them. You know, some of that may be, but that's also where you could have a very clear picture of the cecum or the rectum areas where there's clear landmarks. There can go from no polyp to cancer in a year, and that just doesn't happen and average-risk people. So, you know, as a yeah. GI doc, you know, part of what I, why I love what I do, taking care of these people, you know, colonoscopy and Lynch syndrome has a huge survival advantage, and as you guys know, it's hard to prove a mortality benefit in what we do in medicine, but colonoscopy and Lynch syndrome, I would put it against anything we do to help people live longer. Yeah, I
1: love interventions that actually work. So, risk factors for Lynch syndrome. Tina, what are the patterns that we should be thinking about to start considering Lynch?
2: A helpful mnemonic for screening is the 3-2-1 pattern. Wait, the what? (laughs) Yeah, I learned about the 3-2-1 pattern in med school. Its more formal name is the Amsterdam criteria, which admittedly isn't very sensitive. Most families with Lynch syndrome won't even meet this criteria, and this may only catch really high-risk families. But maybe think of this as more of a mnemonic. There should be three family members with a Lynch syndrome associated cancer, two generations being affected, and one person diagnosed under the age of 50. These folks should definitely be sent to Jess and Beth's shop.
1: Wow. Love that. And I totally have never heard of the 3 one pattern for Lynch syndrome. I kind of feel like this is most useful when taking that initial family history when you're meeting a new patient. You're thinking, is this a family with really bad luck or might there be something actually lurking here?
2: Okay, to summarize, we can refer patients to genetic counseling if they haven't already been referred to by other colleagues, especially anyone with pancreatic or colorectal cancer. More specifics on colorectal genetic eval can be found in the show notes. Another indication for a referral would be someone with a family history of early-onset malignancies. An example of this would be Lynch syndrome. It is the most common hereditary cancer syndrome with an insanely underappreciated prevalence, and it can lead to colorectal, pancreatic, endometrial, and even ovarian cancers, among others. Just
5: a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's <laughs> cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash am 50 Use the code coream50 to get 50% off. That's the code corim 50 at factormeals.com
2: slash 50 So now that we have identified which patients to send to genetic counseling, let's talk about how to prepare these folks for the consultation.
1: Yeah, so one way to think about this is to start with the basics. Who are genetic counselors? I mean, I get that they've probably done a few pun and squares in their lifetime, but having an idea about their background might help our listeners appreciate how this specialty really fits into an evolving field of medical
6: genetics. So a genetic counselor, has, it's a two-year professional master's program. They have to have spent some time in a counseling function before they're actually accepted into a genetic counseling program. They get a, a lot of background in genetic disorders that are involved in the practice of genetic counseling, counseling techniques, things like uh, what might the patient say that would trigger you to use advanced empathy skills, which we don't get in medical school, So, uh, but the, the, the counselors are, are counselors, and they're very attuned to the psychosocial aspects of what's going on with a person and with their family structure.
2: That is Dr. Judy Westman from The Ohio State University.
6: Thank you. Thank you, Tina.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Westman is a board-certified clinical geneticist and medical director of the OSU Genetic Counseling Training Program. Marty, one thing Dr. Westman said that really shocked me was how important the counseling part was in the evaluation, often even before the testing is considered.
6: A genetic counselor will counsel first and work with the patient to decide, is testing appropriate for that person? And that's that might come out differently than what the referring provider's thoughts were on the matter, but it's very patient-centric at that point and what will work for the patient. And not only that, but looking at the broader sense of the your provider kind of was thinking of this, but now as we talk to you, this seems more appropriate to to target the testing in a different fashion. So counseling comes first, then testing is kind of the general general approach.
2: Love it. I almost think of them as counseling geneticists as much as genetic counselors. It turns out that referring providers can really help genetic counselors by explaining not only a little bit about who they are being referred to, but why the patient is being referred.
4: I think that if primary care providers can just Give some explanation as to what their concern is. Like, why, why are you suggesting this referral? So is it because your mom was diagnosed with colon cancer before 50? Is it because your brother died from pancreatic cancer? Um, you know, and, and and these things make it more likely that there could be a genetic predisposition in your in your family that increases your risk for cancer. Just a simple explanation so that they have a better understanding. And then I think a follow-up piece of information may just be, you know, you'll meet with a genetic counselor. They'll provide a risk assessment based on the information that you give them about your family history. They'll talk to you about whether or not genetic testing is indicated and like Our job is to give a patient the tools to make a decision about whether or not they want to have genetic testing. Coming to see us doesn't mean that you have to have a genetic test. It may not even be offered once we get the full full picture of your family history, but um, it's just to to give you the tools to make the decision that's best for you. And I think if primary care providers can help explain that, um, that puts us way ahead.
1: Oh, man, that part is crucial. We're not sending them to get tested, we're sending them to get evaluated to see if testing is indicated. I can imagine a patient being super disappointed if we're hyping up genetic counselors as these gatekeepers of the genetic test, when in fact genetic counselors are making this big calculation about, is the test indicated? And does the test answer what we want it to answer? And does it even exist? And does it make sense for the patient and their family?
2: Oh gosh, that sounds complicated. But let's switch back to Lynch syndrome for a second. One of the key points that all of our experts made was about thinking how this information would be used by patients. So what does that anticipatory guidance sound like for folks who have family history that may be consistent with Lynch syndrome?
4: So if someone's diagnosed with Lynch syndrome who does not have cancer, there are really three main areas where their medical care may change.
1: So first thing a Lynch syndrome diagnosis would do is add additional cancer screening. We already know about more C-scopes, but when do we start and what else is done from a surveillance perspective? People with Lynch
4: syndrome usually start having colonoscopies between the ages of 20 and 30 as opposed to 45 in the general population. And they may have screening that most people don't have. Um, So for example, people with Lynch syndrome are supposed to have upper endoscopies every several years.
2: So I definitely knew that patients with Lynch syndrome needed frequent colonoscopies, but EGDs too? Oh man, I can only imagine how the patients are feeling when they first hear about these tests.
1: Yeah, that can totally feel overwhelming. All right, so first we're finding additional cancers. The second part is preventing cancers from occurring.
4: There may also be medications that could reduce risk for cancer related to Lynch syndrome.
2: So one medication that may reduce the risk of cancer is aspirin. That is true specifically in the Lynch syndrome population. Interestingly, there may also be benefits for birth control pills in reducing the risk for uterine and ovarian cancers. And then the last prong of screening and prevention would be
4: surgical prevention.
2: Yeah, so this is tough. Women with Lynch syndrome are actually encouraged to have their uterus and ovaries removed because we don't have effective early detection for these cancers.
1: Wow. Okay. So if you're diagnosed with Lynch syndrome without any evidence of malignancy, our three main strategies to prevent that evil is one, screening early and often, two, chemo prevention with aspirin and maybe birth control, and three, surgical prevention, since we really aren't good at detecting cancers of the uterus or ovaries.
2: Exactly, Marty. And something really cool that came up in our discussion was about Lynch syndrome specific implications in treating cancers. Turns out there are specific immunotherapy regimens for patients with Lynch syndrome and even talk about a cancer vaccine for these folks. Super early, but pretty
3: sweet nonetheless. The thing that I always point out to my Lynch syndrome patients that, you know, unfortunately get cancer, but patients with Lynch syndrome, you know, matched up with patients without Lynch syndrome, even without immunotherapy have better cancer outcomes. Um, And so it is kind of a silver lining that I tell people, you know, if you have Lynch syndrome, you're going to be an increased risk for cancer. But, you know, thankfully, if that comes up, then you're going to be very responsive to treatment. And we're going to do everything we can to watch you as close as possible where that doesn't happen. No doubt. Big fan of silver linings over here, especially when
1: that playbook is headlined by Bradley Cooper and Jay Lawrence. You picking up what I'm putting down, Tina? <laughs>
2: uh, I'm not sure I am, Marty, but that's OK. Shreya told
1: me this might get weird. Uh-huh. She, she knows me pretty well at this point. All right, Tina, before we wrap up this section, was there anything that our discussants pointed out that PCPs should avoid ordering before sending our patients over to the Genetic Counseling Shop?
4: I think that some primary care providers do feel obligated to order genetic testing themselves if their patients ask them for it because they're, you know, they're trying to provide best care. But if it's not something that you're familiar with, then sometimes that can lead to mistakes. Um, For example, I saw a patient not long ago who requested genetic testing of their primary care provider because they had a family history of colon cancer, and the primary care provider ordered testing for BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are not genes associated with an increased risk for colon cancer. So that test was not really helpful at all in defining risk for colon cancer. And then there may also be circumstances where a primary care provider does a recognize what hereditary condition might be most likely, so, for example, Lynch syndrome, in order testing for that. But there are a total of 20 to 25 genes associated with an increased risk for colon cancer. And it's very common practice now for people who have genetic testing to have panels that include all of those susceptibility genes. Um, And so if we only have testing for Lynch syndrome, we've missed quite a bit of potential hereditary risk. And we may have lost our opportunity to bill through insurance if they've already tested for the condition that can be billed.
1: Damn, I'm surprised, but maybe not surprised to learn that most insurers will only pay for genetic testing once for a specific indication. And if that indication is their family history of breast cancer, in those situations, you really only might get one chance at screening per lifetime. So I, for one, will be waiting for some guidance from a genetic counselor before potentially blowing my patients one chance at getting an expensive test covered.
2: (laughs) For sure, Marty. There are situations where we can feel comfortable ordering genetic testing, and the good news is that the cost is dropping. Spoiler alert, more to come about this in the next section.
3: What often happens is, you know, people will come from their oncologist and be like, oh, I had genetic testing, but what they had was somatic tumor testing um, that's just looking for treatment targets. And just to clarify, when Dr. Stanich says
1: somatic testing, he's referring to looking at tumor cells and all of the acquired mutations that have developed as it goes from being a normal cell to a cancer cell. This is different from germline testing,
3: which is looking at someone's inherited genes. And so that's something we're frequently kind of clarifying that, no, you haven't had germline genetic testing look, looking for inherited causes. Um, and sometimes those can go together, but germline testing often, you know, finds things that somatic testing doesn't find and, that, and we have to confirm that it is germline.
2: Wow, I'm learning so much. Okay, let me try to recap this section. What I'm taking away is if I am thinking about referring someone for genetic counseling, I can set them up for success by setting expectations that the genetic counselors will do a thorough evaluation for you, looking at your family history and other risk factors to see if testing is even appropriate. And since at the moment, insurance will only pay for genetic testing once for specific indications, it's probably better to leave it to the genetic counselors or someone experienced in Medonc or Surgeonc to order the appropriate susceptibility genes.
1: Okay, we're going to finish this pod with a healthy serving of myth-busting. We have four myths we're going to clear the air on. We already talked about the dropping cost of testing. Let's start there.
2: All right. I guess we should address the elephant in the room. What am I looking at when it
0: comes to costs for genetic testing? So there was a point in time, when I first started practicing clinically in 2009, it was about $1,000 per gene cost to insurance. More insurances are now covering the cost of testing, and many commercial genetics labs notify patients if their cost is over $100 or even offer discounted self-pay rates of $249 or less.
1: Okay, love that we're no longer charging patients thousands of dollars per gene but it would sort of be nice to give patients a little guidance about when it comes to what this expense will be for them.
4: I don't think that it is uh, a referring provider's job to understand the nuances of that, but I think um, it's, it's potentially important to be able to tell a patient that Part of the appointment is a discussion of coverage and potential cost for testing, if it's uh, you know if it's deemed appropriate with the risk assessment. And so, just kind of putting someone's mind at ease that that is on our radar, and we're you know we're very familiar with how these things work, and can can explain to them what the process is like.
2: Phew, I'm relieved. Definitely not an insurance expert over here. So basically, I can let my patients know that genetic testing is certainly cheaper nowadays than what it used to be. And costs will be discussed upfront after it's determined if genetic testing is indicated.
1: Good deal. All right. So, what about privacy? For our second myth, let's talk about Gina. Tina. No, no, Gina. Are you messing with me because I'm new here? No, no. Gina, it's a real thing. It's the Genetic Information Non Discrimination Act. It's a federal law from 2008 when this technology was really taken off, and there was this concern that if an insurance company learns about a patient's increased risk for an illness, they might cancel that person's
0: coverage. The Genetic Information Nondiscrimination Act or GINA, states that health insurers cannot drop someone from coverage, deny health insurance coverage, or base premiums on genetic testing results or family history. And that also includes employers with more than 15 employees cannot hire, fire, or base salary on genetic testing or family history information. And so for some people, knowing those protections are in place, remove that fear of not being able to get health insurance. Good deal. But does GINA apply to
6: everything, even life insurance? Two areas GINA does not help with are disability insurance and life insurance. If you have a genetic condition, you are guaranteed the ability to get health insurance. That's the good part of of GINA. Life insurance and disability insurance are felt to be benefits, and investments more than something that every person should have. And so genetic information can be used to deny somebody disability insurance or to deny somebody life insurance. Now, in reality, I have never met a single person denied life insurance because of a genetic susceptibility. They don't get it at top rate, but they're not denied as long as they're willing to pay the extra money. I
2: can't imagine being diagnosed with something so life-changing and then have to worry about how I'm going to pay for all of these medical bills. So glad we cleared that up. Let's move on to our third topping. What's next?
1: Okay, so it turns out genetic testing isn't a one-and-done situation. Sometimes we'll get an indeterminate result, like a variant of unknown significance. Now, most of these variants are going to be reclassified as benign but it's kind of a big deal when that variant is reclassified into a pathogenic category because at that point, it's on us or, well, whoever orders the genetic test to reach out to their patient or their family.
6: I had one patient who came in late in life because they had metastatic cancer. Had the genetic testing done, it came back as a variant of uncertain significance. The patient passed within six weeks of Getting the, the test result. 18 months later, it was reclassified as, as pathogenic, and we knew that that person had children. And we tried to contact the family because it was meaningful for them to at least consciously reject whether they wanted to know that or not. Um, and we were unable to get the family to. To communicate with us, I mean, we even did a genealogy search, hunting for people in the in that region with that name, trying to to track them down, and uh, could not get the family to want to have the the new information. So there's uh, we we tried, and we documented it, anything that we could do to to try and get the information to the people.
2: Yikes. So we as providers should try to emphasize to our patients and their families of that possibility of reclassification in a variant of unknown significance since it can occur even years later. All right, Marty, we've got one last myth to tackle.
1: Yeah, something else that came up over and over again in our discussions with the various experts was how limited a resource genetic counseling time is. In fact, one of Dr. Westman's job is to play the lead blocker for the referrals that come into her shop. Because even at an institution with a large genetic counseling training program, there just isn't enough bandwidth for the genetic counselors to see all those referrals.
6: I triage every referral that comes in and kind of decide, should cancer genetics see this? Should uh, ophthalmology genetics see this? Should endocrine genetics see this patient? Frankly, there are so few genetics professionals that we have to be cautious what we accept into our, our patient list.
2: But how can we help them out? Well we can certainly start the workup for certain inherited conditions that are not related to cancer conditions. Things like Ehlers-Danlos or any hypermobility diagnosis, hereditary hemochromatosis, and HFE testing. If there's any concern for Marfan syndrome, you can always get an echo to screen for aortic root dilatation. And lastly, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can't say I've ever seen a patient with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, but I sure know that our buddies in Palm are thinking about this all the time. The bottom line is we can work with our local genetics counseling clinic to see what their referral process is like and what their limitations are when it comes to what they can and cannot work up. For example, OSU has a genetic counseling e-consult program, which is super sweet to get an official recommendation without your patient having to wait months to get in to see them. Tina, give us our last recap of the evening.
2: Happy to. Genetic testing isn't as expensive as it was in the past, but you should definitely have a discussion with your genetic counselor before any testing is done. Even if testing has been done, it's important that your patients have updated contact information for themselves and their families, just in case their genetic testing results become reclassified down the line. Lastly, although there are many layers of complexity to genetic disorders, general internists can feel empowered to start the work of more common hereditary disorders like hereditary hemochromatosis and alpha-1 antitrypsin
1: deficiency. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and, and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. If you want to check out more teaching from these interviews, check out our YouTube channel.
2: And if you want to add any of your own tips or share challenges, tweet us and leave a comment on our website, Instagram, or Facebook page. You can even email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com.
1: And thank you so much to our peer reviewers, Rachel Perlman and Pooja Darwakar. Huge thanks to Dr. Shbadia for auto-editing and Dr. Salim Najjar for the accompanying graphics. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institution. All right, that's it. See you later.
2: I'm relieved. Definitely not an insurance agent over here.
1: Oh, insurance. Start <laughs> also over here. not an agent. <laughs> I, I, do, I deal. Known. Do.
2: <laughs> the first one is about Eilers danlos or more generally, hypermobility issue.
1: Do you call it Eilers, Not Ellers?
2: It might be a Tina thing. I'm gonna say it. But let me record it both ways, and so we can pick the oh, right that's way. That's hilarious. I don't know what the right way is. <laughs> My, I, just, I like to joke that English is not my first language, but that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving.